everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, we're doing Say Anything. And? And High Fidelity. But first, Say Anything. <laughs> a noble underachiever and a beautiful valedictorian fall in love the summer before she goes off to college. I, David. 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 How have you not seen this? I don't know. <sighs> My John Cusack film knowledge is woefully abysmal. abysmal. Woefully abysmal. I have seen some of his later work, including the movie we're going to watch after this, mm-hmm. and America's Sweethearts, which is one of the most criminally underrated romantic comedies it. of all time. I basically wore out my VHS copy of American Sweethearts. I love that film. It was streaming on Netflix for a while, and that was my fall asleep movie for a couple of months. I love that movie. It is so good. So is this movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. So this has been in our grab bag for a while. We just finished Kubrick. We're about to do Bond. Like, we need something in the middle. We need, like, a palate cleanser. And funny enough, one of our very lovely listeners, Bill, maybe you go by William. I think you go by Bill, said, hey, you guys should watch Say Anything and High Fidelity and do it as a twofer. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And these are on our list. So that's what we're doing. So, <laughs> so hey, you email us. We occasionally do what you tell us to do. Just saying. I'm not trying to open the floodgates, but it happens occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie is just, oh, it's just one of those ones that you feel like it should be a John Hughes film and that it takes place during that time. And it's so earnest and lovely and perfect. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh-huh. This is better than almost every John Hughes movie. Ferris Bueller's the only one that I'll still stand for. Well, that's your like favorite movie of all time. In a huge way. But honestly, with the real problematic stuff mm-hmm. in John Hughes movies and True, his yeah. really problematic perspective mm-hmm. and some of the realism that we really get from this mm-hmm. movie despite certain things that we'll talk about. Yep. I think this stands up way better than those movies do. Mm -hmm. So I take it your overall thoughts about this film are positive? Yeah. I've got some very glaring issues that I I have some problems with. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I really love this movie. (gasps) This is the movie that Singles wanted to be Mm -hmm. and never quite got there because he was trying to do too many stories at once. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's also elements in, you know, watching singles and loving singles for so long that I'm like, this is like the adult extension of what Say Anything was doing. So we actually covered singles previously. We actually did that last spring with our Love is in the Air series. So our writer director is Cameron Crowe. So we've we've talked about him at length, but we'll talk about it in reference to this film. Before this, he did Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we've also covered for this podcast. And he wrote that, not directed. After this, he wrote and directed Singles, Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky, Elizabeth Town, The Pearl Jam 20. I guess it's a documentary. Yeah, it's a documentary. We Bought a Zoo, Aloha, and then Roadie is the TV show. This is actually the directorial debut for Cameron Crowe. This is the first one he ever did. Lawrence Cadson was originally set to direct, but he had to drop out. Would Lawrence Kasdan have done a good job with this movie? I don't know. I don't think it would have been bad because I feel like the script is so good. I really like it feels very 
89. Well, so we'll start with the writing. Yeah. Here's what's really great about it. And here's why I would put it above John Hughes movies. Mm -hmm. John Hughes movies feel very of their time, which is very funny because John Hughes movies are not of their time at all. Mm -hmm. They are of his time as a teenager. Yeah. Being inserted into actors who fit the style of the 80s enough that mm -hmm. it felt super relatable. But what Cameron Crowe has done with this movie is he's made a story that only seems like it's 80s because of what we're seeing on screen. Yeah. The story itself could be played out in any time period past this. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say you could go in the past with this story. True. But from but 1989 from forward... To today, you could rewrite this story, and I'm sure somebody is for like a Netflix movie, redoing, repackaging it. You, you just have to make some minor changes to make yeah. it applicable to different characters, and it still works. The producer of this film is James L. Brooks, who's, you know, big freaking deal for The Simpsons. He said the movie was inspired when Brooks saw a man with his daughter, and he wondered what would happen if the father had committed a crime. Huh. Like, hmm. That's, uh, like, that's such a weird spot of inspiration. This has that Fast Times vibe to it. Yes. Fast Times is definitely still dated. Yes. But there's so much of those elements where you go, this applies so well but, to so many things. But the, the core of the story being told is timeless. Exactly. And everything else around it, the time period, the music, the clothing is just incidental to when it was made. And so that could easily be updated, but it's also just like this really lovely visual snapshot of the time. Yeah. So that's cool. And I love that. And... I feel like this movie still has a really good message. And like, no one's perfect. I love that nobody is perfect at all. Not Lloyd, not Diane, not her dad, no, not Corey. Nobody is perfect. But also nobody's like a true out and out villain. Everybody is real. Yes. Everybody is flawed and has issues that they're trying to reconcile with and also has a genuinely decent outlook on life. I feel like if there's one thing Cameron Crowe is amazing at is character creation. Yeah. It's just like, these are real people. I've made real people. I had some problems with singles just because I thought the execution of the story was not very good, but I liked all the people in the story. Yeah. I think the writing is wonderful. And the direction, I, I mean, I don't think it's... I don't think any of it's bad. There's nothing that specifically stands out. But I think that's okay because the story doesn't need it. I would disagree. This is where I think Cameron Crowe's style really shows through. Nothing is forced. Mm -hmm. The choices that are made in how to present things visually. Some of this is a credit to like costuming mm -hmm. and set decoration. But I've got to say, for a movie from 1989... It doesn't feel as though we're trying to show some fashion plate of the 80s. Mm -hmm. We're just showing normal clothes that people would wear. Lloyd does not look like a quote unquote cool dude or a quote unquote loner dude. Yeah. He's not looking like Christian Slater in Heathers. Yeah. And he's not trying to look dark and brooding. He's looking like a lower economic kid in a working class environment mm -hmm. in Seattle. Yeah. Who's basically just, you know, going to the thrift store and buying whatever clothes they can afford. He looks He's... like a real human. Yeah. Diane looks like a preppy 
put together valedictorian real human. Yeah, she and she also looks very much like the girl who spent her entire high school career with her nose in a book. And I have to believe some of that was out of necessity, but some of that was Cameron Crowe going, this needs to just be people. Mm-hmm. We don't need to make it fancy yeah. or try to promo it in any way. They mm-hmm. need to just be real. Yeah. Because if we do anything else, it's not going to work. It's not a heavy touch that he's putting on mm-hmm. it, but there are choices and stylistic choices that he makes doing this movie mm-hmm. that really cement the script being good. Mm-hmm. It's the thing of not having John Cusack literally lose his mind over this breakup, yeah. but instead go numb. That's such a smart decision. And it's such a smart way to portray it mm-hmm. because he could have just blown up. That's what an that's what a ducky would have done. Well, and I love that scene where he like, I'm gonna go find some guys. I hang out with chicks too much, which is an overcorrection, but a totally valid response. Okay, like I'm only getting feedback from ladies. I need to get some guy feedback. So he goes and hangs out with guys. And it's like, I got a question. You guys know so much about women. How come you here at like a gas and sip on a Saturday night, completely alone, drinking beers, no women anywhere? My choice, man. That's yeah, right, man. It's a conscious choice. choice. It's a choice, man. Choosing to be with And it only amplifies his aggression. Yeah. Well, and then, like, I love how immediately after he's like, that was a bad idea. I know. <laughs> so, like, he's not perfect. He's also 19 years old. This is his first love, his first heartbreak. So it's going to be a little dramatic. I've got to give some credit because I knew a lot of the main beats of this story mm-hmm. from listening to Your Fave is Problematic. They did a lovely dissection of the things about, mostly, they talked a lot about Lloyd particularly. They came to some really cool conclusions about how they felt about Lloyd as a cultural touchstone versus the Diane character. And so I we would definitely suggest if you kind of want to pick apart this movie, from that perspective, to go check out your favorite problematic. Lloyd could so easily fall into, air quotes, nice guy nice territory. Guy. But he's not. No, he is genuinely a caring human being who, again, he makes problematic choices. True. But that's because he's hurt. Yeah, he's hurt. And Diane also does some things that are problematic, but... but- She's incredibly confused. But she's also confused and hurt. And so it's like, I do want to give a grain, like to give a little pause. And I'd be like, well, they're all garbage people. But be like, oh, they're also supposed to be 18, 19 years old. And you're stupid when you're young. Like, that's not to discredit. Like, they're some extremely mature teenagers. But for the most part, most teenagers are dumb. Well, I would say these two teenagers are actually incredibly mature the way they're portrayed. Uh, yes. They're in love. They're in love. And their circumstances yes. are ha- are being incredibly manipulated by a bad adult. By a bad adult, but also a time clock. She is leaving the country. She is leaving. Yes. So, yeah. So that puts everything in this like rushed place. Or, like we We only have so much time together. We have to have all the feelings now. It's a pressure cooker situation. Exactly. So it's kind of one of those like, yeah, I wish they could have done this better, this better. But it's also like, it's 1989. And ultimately, they're good people. They do a pretty decent job of calling out the bad stuff. Like when she goes to him, she goes, I need you. He says, is it that you need me or you just need someone? Yeah. Which is very fair. And then I also love that he's like, I don't even care. Like that, He just like, he feels like he needs to ask that question, which is very respectful and also like, 
I want to make sure it's me that you really want. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't care. I care about you so much. I want to be, I want to be there for you, yep. which is beautiful and sweet. And the ending. Any second now. The only better ending is the end of The Graduate for a romantic story. It's so perfect. It's such a perfect little, they're waiting, they're waiting, and then ding, end of movie. You're just like, it's it's so hopeful. It's a very hopeful ending. I wouldn't say this is directly a romantic comedy, but that's what you want from this type of film. Well, what you get is hope amidst uncertainty. Yes. You don't get a resolution. You don't need one. Mm -hmm. You're just saying... Their adventure is going to be great. Whether or not it ends up good or bad, the adventure they're about to go on is going to be awesome. Yeah. And I I, I love that. Yeah. No, it's just, it's so good. All right. So let's get into our cast because they're part of what makes this so amazing. Of course, we start with John Cusack as Lloyd Dobler. Lloyd Dobler. Oh, my God. Before this, he was in class, 16 Candles, Better Off Dead, Stand By Me, Tape Heads, and Eight Men Out. After this, I, I really just tried to pick the big ones. He was in Fat Man and Little Boy, The Player, Gross Point Blank, Con Air, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, The Thin Red Line, Pushing Tin, Being John Malkovich, which really started to make him explode. Then, of course, High Fidelity, which we're going to cover next. America's Sweetheart, which I rambled on about. Serendipity, which is also a great film. Max Adaptation, Must Love Dogs, Martian Child, Hot Tub Time Machine 1 and 2, which we saw the first one, and it was actually pretty good. They're not bad. <laughs> Love and Mercy. He's in Chirac, which we're going to cover during our Spike Lee series this summer. And recently, he's been on a bunch of like smaller films. I would love to see him on a television series. God, he'd be great. He would be phenomenal in a television series. He is at Something just like the right a, time. Oh, he would be perfect in like a Westworld. He's so good. He's just so good. Arrow to my fucking heart this entire he's, movie. He's just he's so appropriately earnest. And I love the way he, he okay, so I love that when he's nervous he rambles. He just keeps talking. I don't want to make anything. I don't know. I've, I've <clears throat> thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I, I would have to say considering what's waiting out there for me. I don't want to sell anything, buy anything or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed or buy anything sold or processed or process anything sold, bought or processed or repair anything sold, bought or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So uh, my father's in the army. He wants me to join, but I can't work for that corporation. Um, So what I've been doing lately is kickboxing. I fully respect that perspective. I'm like, I don't want anything with that in my job, but I just love how he just rambled. I love that he knows that's that's probably not the most appealing sounding thing. Like to not know what you want in your life doesn't sound appealing to a father. Well, the greater line that he gives is, my job is to make your daughter happy. And this man cannot process that. Well, no, he's just like, I think right now my focus is that I want to spend as much time with your daughter before she leaves. That's my job. And then at the end of the film, he's just like, the thing I'm really good at is loving your daughter. So I'm, I'm going to England with her. Which is just like, you know, it short circuits her dad's mind because that is not acceptable for my achieving daughter and it's like you don't get it dude no you don't understand love well and then that coincided with the fact that she's got this very open relationship with her dad and she's just you know talking about the whole pressure and she's like i feel like you know this is stupid i'm not gonna do this but then i attacked him anyways (laughs) like it's just like what is happening with these children it's great and 
He's just, ugh, he's so handsome. Oh my gosh, he's so fucking I'll take cute him in this then. Movie. I'll take him now. I love John Cusack in this film. He's so good. Would you like some Who Could Have Been Better? Sure. Christian Slater. No, not after Heathers. No, it's too close. Lauren Dean, who actually plays Joe. Peter Berg. Oh, the director? Yeah, Peter Berg's also an actor. Oh, wow. Uh, no, I don't know anything about his acting, so. Todd Field. Who, oh. Who we just talked about in our Eyes Wide Shut episode. Robert Downey Jr. actually turned it down. Oh, he'd have been good. He could have been interesting. He's a little smarmy. He, he's a little smarmy. And Kurt Cameron was also considered. <laughs> who, he's a garbage person, so he can go away. I mean, at the time. Yes, at the time. I get it. Nobody comprehended the lengths he was going to go to. He didn't even know. We loved him as Mike Stever on Growing Pain. But I will say Kurt Cameron was too clean Yes, cut. he was too clean cut for this character. I can't see anybody but John Cusack. If it hadn't been so close to Heather's, I would have said Christian Slater. No. He's the only one in that group who could have played this character, but I wouldn't trade John Cusack for the world. Well, but you've got Heather's, and then right after that, you've got Pump Up the Volume. Oh, yeah. Fuck. And like, Christian- That's a lane he played in for a very long time. Basically, it's Kirk Cameron is too much the good guy, and Christian Slater's too much the bad guy. True. This character is neither. He is a weirdo. Uh-huh. And you've got to have somebody who can convincingly be weird and uh-huh. lonery. And John Cusack pulls that off because he's an everybody who is not bad looking, but also can feel walled off. Yeah. So that when he opens up and becomes vulnerable, you fall in love with him. It's John Cusack all day. Next, we have Ioni Sky as Diane Court. Before this, she was in The River's Edge, Napoleon and Josephine, Stranded, A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon. After this, she was in The Rachel Papers, Wayne's World, Covington Cross on TV. She has an uncredited role in But I'm a Cheerleader. She was in the 2002 Twilight Zone. She was on the camping TV series on HBO. She plays Mrs. Veal in the 2019 Arrested Development, like the more recent seasons. She's going to be in Holy New York and You Drive Me on TV. She's the weak link of this movie for me. I agree. I really needed somebody who could act. I think there are moments where she's good, but I I think a lot of the time she just falls completely flat for me. I think she plays Ernest when she should be playing more conflicted. See, I don't even buy that. She, She just feels like that classic 80s actress vibe. And the writing is propping a lot of that up no, and I, making it seem earnest, but she just seems no, dead flat. But to the me. way she plays it all is as being earnest, and her character should be just more conflicted. She knows who she is. So, okay, why why am I going out with this guy? Why am I at this party? What am I doing here? Like she should be more conflicted with everything that's going on. There's also something about it doesn't feel like she makes any changes even after spending this much time with Lloyd. She's still so freaking devoted. And we don't see any of this pressure mounting on her until one moment when we get into that interview room with the detective. That's the one moment where it really actually feels Mm -hmm. like this pressure is mounting on her. Because the scene with her dad, while it is great and Mm -hmm. expertly written, Mm -hmm. feels so she she falls flat in it yes i i fully agree i do feel like she changes 
But I feel like that is the work of the script and not her performance. Like, she's not going to stand by her dad. It's like, what he did was wrong. Like, she's not going to listen to him try and tell her that this is okay. What you did was wrong and you lied to me and I defended you and you're a liar. Yeah. She has every right to be upset. And then she's got a mom who's just not that interested in her. So that's hard. And then she's got this great thing in front of her, but it's being tainted by this crap with her dad. And then she's got this boy that she doesn't want to hurt, but she also doesn't want that to cloud her decision making. I just, I need somebody else who's a stronger actor to be able to do this. Okay, well, I have two options for you. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Connelly, she tied with Ione Skye for the role. And Elizabeth Shue was also considered. Oh, my heart. Elizabeth Shue! Elizabeth Shue would have been perfect. Jennifer Connelly would have been great. She would have been great because Jennifer Connelly is great. But Elizabeth Shue! That's a pairing made in heaven. Oh, it would have been so cute. Ugh. And both of those actresses would have convinced me mm-hmm. of having all of these mixed emotions wrapped up in these things. As it is, I, you know, again, it's just how I'm watching it. It's just completely stale and flat for mm-hmm. the majority of the movie. And I don't get from her performance any of the conflict that's going on. I get it through the lines and what I see from other actors. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't disagree. Next, we have John Mahoney as James Court. We recently talked about him in Moonstruck. You know, before this, he was in a bunch of TV. He's in Code of Silence, Streets of Gold, Suspect, Moonstruck, Eight Men Out as alongside John Cusack. And then after this, he was on the Help TV show. He was in Barton Fink, The Human Factor, Frasier. Mm-hmm. He was also in Reality Bites, Ants, The Iron Giant, The Broken Hearts Club. He was on In Treatment. Hot in Cleveland, and then he passed away last year at the age of 77. (laughs) I love John Mahoney. He is so good. He's never bad. Yeah, and this character could have gone completely off the rails. Uh Uh-huh. And at first, it's really weird off-putting because you think he's just going to be controlling dad. Yeah, you you, like when he meets... Lloyd, you think he's going to be like the dad with a shotgun. Who's this boy who's coming to meet my daughter? And now he's just very like, okay, who are you? And then Lloyd does all this talking and it's like, well, okay. Because he clearly trusts his daughter. He does. It's this weird thing of he trusts his daughter. Then he meets Lloyd and a lot of his suspicions are confirmed because he never seems like shotgun dad. No. He seems like super. You might suspect that though. Mm, to me, he seems overbearing, protective of mm-hmm. daughter. Yeah. He seems like he's going to be, I control my daughter's life because I want her future to be good, dad. Mm-hmm. And we get that scene with Lloyd and it's so awkward and it's so perfect because he's doing that perfectly. And then the IRS agents show up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it twists in this whole new direction where you realize this perfection that he's seeking is also to cover up all of these bad things that he does. Yeah. Which bad things it does is that he's stealing from the people he takes care of at the retirement community he runs. And that scene where he goes into the bathroom in the shower. Oh, when he's cr- when he's freaking out. There's a lot of shit that happens in the bathroom. It's Lloyd's office. It's where we have a panic attack. Uh, no, his face, his facial expressions in that are amazing. And just... John Mahoney is amazing. And the final breakdown of that prison of just completely ruining the facade yeah and showing to be the asshole he really is 
Well, there, yeah, there's that. But I also like he's being kind of like a dick to Lloyd because it's like you're trying to replace me. And, and then like the second he sees his daughter, you can just see him as just this broken man who's like, I have I've done something that I'm never going to be able to fix with my daughter. All I can do is literally sit here and wait until she forgives me. And he hates Lloyd. Oh, he, he hates Lloyd because Lloyd's right. Well, Lloyd is everything he's not. I don't know about that. But he's a young man and he's replacing the man in his daughter's life. All right, next we have Lily Taylor as Corey Flood. Oh, Lily oh, Taylor. Another my heart in this movie. She's so amazing. Before this, she was in She's Having My Baby and Mystic Pizza. After she she did a couple of TV things. She was in Dogfight, Watch It, Shortcuts, Ready to Wear, The Edition. I shot Andy Warhol as Valerie Solanas. That movie's amazing. That was my first introduction to her. She was in Ransom, The Imposters, Pecker, The Haunting. She was in the TV series Deadline. She was on Six Feet Under as Lisa. The Notorious Betty Page, The Conjuring, because she's been in a lot of horror films. American Crime. She's in The Nun. And then she's got the Gettysburg Address that's coming up that she's going to be in, The Evening Hour, and Audrey's Run. She's so that girl. She is. She's that girl, but she's amazing. She's gorgeous. She's gorgeous. I love her look. Oh, yeah. So 80, 90s Seattle. That's just so what it is. I know. Well, and it's, again, it's that specificity. Mm -hmm. Had it just been normal girl, you could have almost pegged her for Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Mm -hmm. but she's not because she's so Seattle specific that you immediately throw that out the window. And then you even throw it out further when... Uki Predator Joe shows up and she's written 82 songs. I love just Lily Taylor's with Joe. It's so great. And you think when he's tries to get back together with her, she's going to go for it. And then it's just like, no. And she goes, and she's like, I got I got more songs to finish. <laughs> like, I love it. I do love it because it would have been so easy. It would have been so easy. She is that girl, but she is so much fun. She's great. Next, we have Pamela Adlon as Rebecca. It's another one of the little friends. Before this, she was in Greece too. The Facts of Life, The Red Fox Show, Space Camp. After this, she is mostly known for her voice work. She is most famous for being Bobby Hill on King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. But she was also Dewey Duck on The Quack Pack, Moose Pearson, and Pepper Ann. Milo Oblong on The Oblongs. Spinelli on Recess this is one of my favorite. She was also in Californication, Louie. And then she does a voice on The Big Bang Theory, and she has her own show called Better Things. Which friend is she? Not the one with the super curly hair, the other one. Okay. Didn't she, recognize like, her she's, at all. She's got that deeper, gruffier voice. Yeah, I just didn't. Yeah, you don't recognize her. She can really be a chameleon. She was considered for the other friend who plays DC, mm-hmm. but she became Rebecca. Speaking of DC, that's played by Amy Brooks. She's just not in the film enough, and she doesn't have as big of a repertoire. So, yeah, so that's really like all the big people. Now we get into our Arpons. Ooh, Arpons. Oh, we have Jason Gould playing Mike Cameron. That's the guy that they drive around trying to help him find his house. That is the son of Barbara Streisand and Elliot Gould. Man, I dig his hair. His hair is amazing. And he's got that Elliot Gould face. We have Jeremy Piven as Mark. Ugh. I know. Whatever. But Jeremy Piven and John Cusack do 8 billion films together. So this is one of them. We have B.B. Newworth as Mrs. Evans. This is her film debut. 
Wowzers. I know. But she's playing the guidance counselor who shows up to the party. <laughs> she gives Lloyd her keys. I get it. It was a different time? Well, no. I think what's really funny about it is that she's a good guidance counselor. Yeah. And then is giving horrible impressions of how to actually live your damn life. Correct. And I think that's the joke of it. Mm -hmm. And so the wink and a nod there is pretty funny. We have Eric Stoltz as Valerie. He's the guy who's hosting the party. It's Eric Stoltz. It's Eric Stoltz. That dude is so good. He really is. But he couldn't pull off Marty McFly. Well, I think that was also partly Robert Zemeckis not realizing that he didn't want a serious actor. Like, Eric Stoltz was the wrong choice. It's not that he wasn't it's just, good. It's I, that he was the I would wrong choice. kill to see that footage. I want to see the footage. Oh, it's out. It's on the, it's on the special oh, okay. edition stuff. Next, we have Kim Walker as Sheila. She was Heather Chandler in Heather's. She plays completely against that type. She does. She really does. And one of the other Heathers, Lee San Falk, plays Sandra. She's the one. Uh, she's one of the girls who's commenting on her calling home to her dad. Oh yeah, I love that bit mm-hmm. for just how they're not even really insulting her. They're just like, "What is this alienness? <laughs> like, what? You Who does this?" I think it's so funny that nobody really like insults anybody. The bro dudes definitely the, to- are dumb. totally, but totally. most people there. They're not there to like nitpick or be awful because that's not how most teenagers it's just are. That none of them have ever seen her in this context. And so it's like she's a zoo animal yes. where they're going, What is well, this? Well, and to be fair, she is dressed purpose like she's going to a cocktail party and it's like, No, yeah. we're going to a kegger. <laughs> but there's no outright malice. Yes, correct. They like, they react Judgment. Judgment, but not malice. And it's it's just so funny to see that take. And, and it's quirky enough that it really catches you by surprise and makes the moment even funnier. We also have China Phillips at the party as Mimi. Then we get Richard Portnow as one of the IRS agents. Dan Castellaneta as one as the teacher. Of course, he's Homer and 8,000 other voices on The Simpsons because this is a James L. Brooke produced movie. And then last but certainly not least, Joan Cusack as Constance Dobler. Joan Cusack doing what she does best, playing John's sister. Well, there's also one other fun little bit. Philip Baker Hall as the IRS boss. Oh, I missed one. Okay. Paul Thomas Anderson favorite. He's in Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And is also just kind of a that guy character actor, older guy who's in a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get into our trivia. Okie doke. John Cusack put a scar on his right eyebrow for his character. He says that his backstory is that someone threw a rock at Lloyd when he was a kid. Such an adorable addition. It, it is. Everything he does makes him more adorable. So cute. I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Was voted number 73 of the 100 greatest movie lines. It's also fucked up. You like crying. Give me a pen. Give my heart, and she gave me a pen. It's a good it's a fucking line. Cra- it's so devastating, and it's and delivered it- perfectly. I think that's the one oh, thing sure. about it. It's always the delivery. It's rarely just the words. Like that's- snap out of it from Moonstruck. Snap out of it. 
you don't care about that. But it's how she says it and the context with which she says it was what makes it amazing. Well, and Cameron Crowe could border on sappy and cheesy, but it's the understatedness. It's the devastation that's on his face and in his voice so that when you hear him say it, you believe it. The dojo featured in this movie is also the one used in The Karate Kid. John Cusack's kickboxing scenes in the ring, including the one with his broken nose, was done with Don Wilson, who was a real-life kickboxing champion. Director Cameron Crowe couldn't find the love song he wanted until he heard Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. Gabriel asked to see part of the movie, and Crowe had his production company send him an unfinished cut. Gabriel gave his permission to use the song, saying he liked the film, but not the lead character overdosing at the end. Crowe realized that Gabriel had actually been sent a copy of Wired. (laughs) Oh, Lord. During the iconic scene with Lloyd holding the boombox over his head, the actual song that was being played during filming was Turned the Other Way by Fishbone. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be weird. Yeah. Cameron Crowe actually commissioned the Smithereens to write the movie's theme song, and they came up with A Girl Like You. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a huge fucking hit. Crowe thought the lyrics were too leading because they basically outlined the entire plot. So he rejected it in favor of In Your Eyes, and then A Girl Like You was included in the Smithereens album, and then also in the movie Backdraft in 91. It's one of their biggest hits. Yeah, but it does make sense. If it gives away too much, you don't want to use it. The model of boombox that Lloyd Dobler holds over his head is the Toshiba RT-SX1. Somebody wants to know that. Ione Sky once was dating Anthony Kiedis, who's the lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers. Their song, Taste the Pain, is on this soundtrack. Early, early Chili early. Peppers. Ione Sky admitted on the film's audio commentary that there was actually off-screen chemistry between her and John Cusack during filming. And had they not been involved with other people at the time, they would have probably gone home together the day that they shot him teaching her how to drive. Ah. Yeah. So I will say they do have good chemistry on screen. Yeah. They do. There are some performance issues, but they have wonderful chemistry. The cabbie that's taking them to graduation is played by Stone Gossard. (laughs) who would later appear in singles as a member of the band Citizen Dick. Yep. (laughs) The fantastic rhythm guitarist and main songwriter for Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. Lloyd and Diane's school appear to be based on the Lakeside School, which is a very prestigious private school in Seattle. In the movie, the school is called Lakewood, and its mascot is a rooster, not a lion. Okay, so I do love this, and I'm going to have to ask our Seattle friends more about it. On the way to her high school graduation, they drive past the Waiting for the Interurban Sculpture, which stands at North 34th Street in Seattle's Fremont District. It was created in 1979 by artist Richard Baer. The Interurban Sculpture features six cast aluminum people waiting at a transit stop for the Interurban Railway, Seattle streetcar service that ceased operations in 1940. And as they drive by it, they've got graduation caps in honor of graduation day. The residents of Fremont dress up the interurban statues for occasion. So they do Santa Claus hats and white beards and red coats. So they do all that stuff. This is the greatest thing ever. I know. I love it. I love it. I really hope they still do that. That's amazing. I'm going to have to ask our Seattle people. All right. And last but not least, there is a director cameo. 
Cameron Crowe, along with his wife, Nancy Wilson. They are pedestrians in front of the mall as Lloyd passes by when he's recalling their first date. (laughs) All right. So that's it for this movie. I'm so glad you liked it. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Okay. What is our scale going to be? How many pins are you going to give it? Oh, wait. It's my movie. I have to go first. Yeah, you do. Oh. I'm going to go with my first instinct, which is a four. Like, there's stuff that's not great, but the movie is so hopeful and the intentions are all good. Like, they're, like nobody's trying to be a dick, except for, like, the obvious, like, trash humans at the drinking in the parking lot. And it just it makes me feel good. Uh, it's a four. I'm going to go four and a half. <gasps> what? I got a four and a half out of David. Why were you going to be surprised about this? I, like, I knew you liked it. I didn't know you liked it that much. Yeah. I'm so upset. Did you not see me swooning on the couch like half of the movie? When we were, d- no, I did. When we were done, I was like, you should have seen this movie 20 years ago, David. And yeah, I, just, I like, know stomped. I should have. <laughs> Although I would have been annoying Lloyd Dobler for a while after it. Would have been? Okay. Uh, you're yeah. fair. Uh-huh. Yeah. The only ding I have to give it is that one of our leads is fairly unbelievable in the performance. The catch is, is that the writing is so good that it props up even a failed performance from anybody in this movie. It's so well-written. It's so well-directed in the sense that he lets the writing do what it needs to do and then adds whatever he needs to give it Mm -hmm. to make sure that it plays well in the scene. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing that he's doing. And you can feel him make those choices, but without being overbearing. He just, he lets the story breathe Not only is it charming, not only is it adorable, I think the reason it hits me and makes me swoon and fawn for it a bit is because it also feels real. It it does have some heightened Mm -hmm. elements to it. Sure. But not as much as some of the affectations that we see now. You know, something like a Juno where it's very much affectation and style. This is not that. This is two very intelligent people from very different backgrounds and also incredibly mature, mm-hmm. they're weirdos in their own respective rights. Yeah. And they're falling in love, and they're trying to figure out what the fuck that means for them because they're on a clock. The only thing that's slightly unbelievable about this movie is the premise, and the writing is so good that it just completely bypasses that. Hmm. It's a four and a half. I'd watch this movie over and over again. Oh, we will. All right. Well, that's it for this movie. We're going to be back and we're going to talk about High Fidelity. Ready for some woman hating? That's my life. See you in a minute. High Fidelity. Rob, a record store owner and compulsive list maker, recounts his top five breakups, including the one in progress. So you haven't seen this movie before, but you had read the book. I read the book a long time ago. I like Nick Hornby. I don't remember ever. Like, I remember the lists are a big deal in the book. Which makes sense. Of course. And, like, I remember not feeling like Rob is as big of a douche. Like, he's not a good dude, but I 
It's so much worse on film. (laughs) (laughs) It also could be perspective of time. I mean, when you read it close around to when it came out, the age of this movie has not served it well at all. No. It's definitely different when like you can like physically see somebody like going through all this stuff. And it's like, oh, this isn't great. The way I feel about this movie is that I think there's a core and a nugget of this story that mm-hmm. is interesting. Yes. But there's nothing done to make Rob interesting or redeemable. No. They try, but it falls really flat. Like, it even ends with him still being a dick. And literally everything is about him. Like, I understand, like, all these horrible breakups, and then he's, like, he wants to go revisit them. To be like, okay, how did this turn out for them? Then he's like, oh, wait, I broke up with this person. Oh, yep, not my fault. Like, he's just, it's... Lloyd Dobler would be so disappointed in Rob. There you go. <laughs> he is the anti-Lloyd Dobler. He really is. And I think there's an interesting story to be told there mm-hmm. if we do find some transformation in him. Yeah. But we don't. And part of this is that this movie feels like 30 minutes too long. It's definitely too long for what it is. Definitely. To go that long without giving us any sort of re- Redemption or transformation of his character to recognize, oh shit. Well, like the most profound thing he says towards the end of the movie is, I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of everything else for that matter. But I don't ever seem to get tired of you. So. I think I know what you mean. Like, that's really sweet, but it's also at the same time where he's openly flirting with this woman who he clearly has a shit ton in common with. And it's just like, oh, so like, is it that you just don't want to be alone? Because that's really what it comes down to is like you just don't want to be alone. So you turn all these women into these horrible stereotypes, all the while you're being the worst stereotype possible. This is a proto-incel movie. It really is. It is, yeah. And it's gross. It's gross. Especially his his high school girlfriend. Oh, that one was particularly horrible. Not good. It's not an appropriate way to think about women. But I love the whole like they were everywhere. And then all of a sudden they had breasts. We (laughs) wanted them. That's not an appropriate way to look at women at all. But it so perfectly describes that switch being turned on in some males and young ladies. Like, it just happens. Where, like, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what are those? I am interested. I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Because there is an honesty about Rob's character in these moments that opens him up for potential vulnerability. But nothing has changed. That's the problem. What I see in the first half of this movie is really great because the opportunity is there to now make him feel vulnerable. Uh What really gets me is that scene when he meets back up with her. And she's just like, no. She's opening up to him and all he does is treat it as, oh, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. Which again, played the right way, still works for that character. But it's really, really hard to watch. It's horrible. And it's not good at all because there's been no growth with him. It's 20 years later and he's still a dick. It's really frustrating movie. Yeah. Because it should end a certain way. And it just doesn't. All right. The budget for this movie was $30 million. Mm -hmm. It opened 
with six million five hundred thousand dollars, and it only grossed twenty seven million two hundred seventy seven thousand dollars. Yeah, not not a winner. So before we get into any of our stuff, I'm going to say that there's no interesting trivia about this movie whatsoever. It's basically connections mm -hmm. and music cameos yeah. and how music interrelates to things. Mm -hmm. There's no real interesting production trivia. Okay. So it's going to be a lot of speculation for us on this movie. Cool, cool, cool. We talked about Nick Hornby writing the novel. I have to assume, based on his track record, that Hornby had a much different take on the character. That it's more of a confessional style novel, and that in the end, he is coming to terms with what an asshole he's been. Well, Nick Hornby said that the movie was a lot like just some people decided to read his book on film. Hmm. Okay. The book takes place in London, as, as most of his works do. Which I did see that he had no complaints yeah. about moving it to Chicago, because he was like, the story is still the story. Yeah, he's just like, this uh, This story has more, has, there's more going on in the story than where it's located, which is true. Actually, the music, I think, is the most important part of the book. Yeah. And how it relates to the characters and like what they mean to the characters. And I like Nick Hornby. Now, he plays with like the juvenile male. That's his lane. He also wrote about a boy, which I love, and is also a great movie adaptation. But this is very problematic. Sorry, Nick. Let's talk about our writers. Okay. There are three writers here that come from Gross Point Blank. A movie I've also never seen. D.V. DeVicentis, Steve Pink, and John Cusack. Okay. DeVicentis also wrote several episodes of the American Crime Story of O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Steve Pink directed Accepted Hot Tub Time Machine and Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Okay. And Cusack, of course, helped write Ghost Point Blank and this. Yeah. The final writer is Scott Rosenberg, who wrote Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Beautiful Girls from 1996, Con Air, Gone in 60 Seconds, Kangaroo Jack, and then did the TV shows October Road, Life on Mars, Happy Town, Zoo, wrote the movie Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Yeah. Venom, okay. and is doing the sequel to Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. Okay, so like this is the lane that all these guys play in and they're friends, clearly. <laughs> I don't know anything about this without reading the novel and you don't still have enough familiarity with the novel to know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm going back through because Nick Hornby wouldn't continue to have a career now yeah. if these guys were all just assholes that he wrote. Yeah. I feel like. I've got to imagine that John Cusack and his buds mm -hmm. read this book thought, what a cool movie about a record store owner, and missed the fucking point. That's what I think happens mm -hmm. here. Like, they got so caught up in the vibe and the music choices and Chicago and all this stuff, because there's so many little details about Chicago that are yeah. interspersed throughout this movie, mm -hmm. because it's John Cusack's home base and knowledge. And at no point did they figure out that there's a theme to this story that needs to be dealt with. Well, and ultimately, like, he ends up with Laura, and he shouldn't. He should be alone. He should be, like, I feel like he should, that, that's, especially in this movie, he should be alone at the end. He like, can't treat anybody he, else in his life with respect. He should be alone realizing that he needs to move on from the record store and continue producing music, because clearly where he has a talent for, and while maybe pursuing the relationship with the music writer. That's someone who actually gets me and my thing, but I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on this new thing for a while because like they just point out over and over again that he's not aware of anybody else. His dreams are pathetic and just really myopic. 
And so for him to like take a chance and do this thing with these kids that he kicked out of his store, like, okay, I'm I'm gonna move on from some shit. Like that's the better character growth. It's like you're still a dick, but you're a dick with some promise. But it's just a huge story flaw. It is. And it's really disappointing for a movie that's so revered and also has charm. It does have charm. But it's when it's when they're in the record store when they're talking about the songs. Like their top five lists are great. Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones. Track ones. Janie Jones, Clash from the Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh, Ruling the Nation. kind of a new record. Excuse very, me, I was in a minute. Record. Very nice, Rob. That's interesting because when he, they go in and explain what the top five and why the top fives that's so fun that's interesting our director is stephen frears mm-hmm. was originally slated for mike newell to direct oh okay who did four weddings and a funeral donnie brasco and pushing 10 amongst lots of other things but stephen frears did tons of tv work in britain through the 70s and 80s and broke with my beautiful laundrette hmm. which was also daniel day lewis's big breakout role hmm. Then did Prick Up Your Ears, 1988's Dangerous Liaisons, Hero, Mary Riley, and after this did the 2000 remake of Failsafe for television, hmm. Dirty Pretty Things, Mrs. Henderson Presents, 2006's The Queen, Lay the Favorite, Philomena, Florence Foster Jenkins, and most recently Victoria and Abdul. All right. So he's moved into those period piece British royal pieces. British dramas. Hanging out with Judy Dench and Helen Mirren a lot. This is a weird movie for him to direct. I think the direction's actually pretty good. Because you get all the pieces where the action's happening and then all of a sudden Rob is talking directly to the camera. And John Cusack's great at that. He also does this wonderful thing with breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. of making it picturesque. Yes. There's a there's a choice in style that very clearly delineates mm-hmm. when we're in reality and when we're not. Yeah, like I love the scene where he's in his bed imagining them having sex and like it's really tight on his face with the covers all around him and then it goes wide and he's like thrashing about it's so absurd but it's great him talking to bruce springsteen yes <laughs> yeah i think the directing's fine and it works well for the conventions of the story there's nothing wrong with anything anybody's doing mm-hmm. it's what they're saying that is so <laughs> Incredibly off-putting. We have script problems. We have huge script problems. Yeah. Our cast, starting off with John Cusack as Rob Gordon. I mean, he's adorable, and I love him, and I still love him, and he can get it anytime he wants, but... He can for about 45 minutes of this movie. His character's just such a dick. It's just like, go away now, thank you. Well, it's a beating. It's also why, because this movie's overlong, mm-hmm. even if he's unredeemable at the end, mm-hmm. but... There's a twist on it where we're like, well, okay, at least he's, you know, away. Mm-hmm. If it had just been, he sees this other girl, he realizes, and then he's like, I can't be with you, Laura. Mm-hmm. End the movie. We lost 30 minutes off this movie now. Yeah. And we're happy. Yeah. That's that's a perfect mm-hmm. ending. But we have we stretch it out another 20 minutes and we keep getting beat over the head with how awful he is. Yeah. 
that no, you just lose caring for him. Yeah. Even Hela as Laura. Uh, she's, yeah. I bet she's great in her homeland of Denmark. I bet she really is. She looks exactly like Mary Stuart Masterson. She is a pretty prolific Danish actress. Okay. She's done a couple of American movies. Mm-hmm. She had a run after this, obviously, because mm-hmm. she's got a pretty known part here, but then mostly went back to Denmark and has been doing Danish work since then. Mm-hmm. She's passable. She does nothing special or interesting. I wouldn't say completely. She's not as compelling as any of the other female characters that we see in this movie, and that's really frustrating because she's so important to the story. Mm-hmm. Plus, she keeps calling him back, and I'm like, this is gross. Like, that's where it really gets gross for me, is they keep forcing this character to go back to Rob. Well, it's just so pathetic. Like, okay, he does some fucked up shit, and that's why she leaves. So why is she coming back? Like, there's no reason for her to actually come back to him. I would have bought it when her father dies for her to go back to him then, but she keeps going back to the apartment in these stupid ways. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. Well, it's, yeah, it's the, it's, it's the forced, contrived plot device of putting her back there. Yeah. And I sit there going, my God, after what he did to you, that's borderline criminal mm-hmm. what he pulls. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. Todd Luizzo as Dick from the record store. Before this, he was in Billy Bathgate, Son of a Woman, Apollo 13, The Rock, Jerry Maguire, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, and A Cool Dry Place. After this, Triple X State of the Union, Thank You for Smoking, Snakes on a Plane, School for Scoundrels, and a lot of smaller indie roles. He also directed the 2012 indie Hello, I Must Be Going, mm-hmm. and co-wrote the 2015 adaptation of Macbeth, starring Michael Fassbender mm-hmm. and Marion Cotillard, which I desperately yes, want to see. Yes, did want to see that. He's a great character. He really is. Him and Jack Black are great counterparts to John Cusack in this film. They really are because they're just different extremes. And he's just like quiet and reserved with like this something's burning underneath. And it's just great. He's got this intense knowledge of music and Mm -hmm. really wants to, you know, be out there and talking to people. What's really awesome about his character is that as the story unfolds, if you're really watching him, mm-hmm. because I was, because I gave up on Rob, yeah. um, you get to see these little moments of him opening up yeah. to where by the end of the movie, yeah, he's still really shy and nerdy, but he's also now himself. He's himself. He's got a girlfriend. It's great. It's, it's so cute. Like I love the scene where he shows up at Rob's apartment and Rob's playing with his records and it's just like, what are you doing? You're not. It's not chronological or alphabetical. Oh, it's bio- it's biographical. Whoa. <laughs> like, he is so intrigued by this, and he wants to be there for all of it. And a little scared. A little scared. And then it's just like, don't leave your records like that. It's not good for them. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. It's precious. It's so cute. Jack Black as Barry Judd. Before this, he started off with Bob Roberts, Airborne, Demolition Man, Bye Bye Love, Waterworld, Dead Man Walking, Biodome, The Cable Guy, the Fan, Mars Attacks, The Jackal, Enemy of the State, and Cradle Will Rock. Mm-hmm. After this, Saving Silverman, Shallow Howl, Orange County, Run Ronnie Run, Ice Age, School of Rock, Anchorman, Envy, Shark Tale, King Kong, Nacho Libre, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny, Margo at the Wedding, Tropic Thunder, Kung Fu Panda, Be Kind, Rewind, Walk Hard, Year One, Kung Fu Panda 2, 
Bernie, The Big Year, The Muppets, Goosebumps, Kung Fu Panda 3, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, The House with the Clock in Its Walls, and he will be in the Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle sequel. I love Jack Black. And like, this is clearly like a turning point for him. Like, people finally started to figure out what to do with Jack Black. Sort of. I'm still not convinced they have figured him out. School of Rock is the first time. School of Rock is where he is like a full on leading man and it is all him. Yeah. And he makes that fucking movie. Oh, he does. That movie is one of my favorites. That's the genius of Richard Linklater. (laughs) Oh, no, I get that. But like, Jack Black's one of those guys that, yeah, he's the chunky dude, so a lot of times that gets relegated to this the fun sidekick, but he's got this intensity, but this sweetness about him that makes him more interesting than just like the crazy sidekick. And I think the, the problem with this movie that School of Rock rectified mm-hmm. is that they made him too edgy. They made him a little too much of an edgelord. He's so mean about it. Yeah. He's He's, such a dick, which his character is a dick. Compared to Rob and Dick makes total sense. Yeah. Like, okay, you got to have somebody who's this intense and mean about it. For a record for my daughter for her birthday. I just called to say I love you. Do you have it? Yeah. Great. We have it. Great. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that tells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. is she in a coma? Oh, okay, buddy. I didn't know it was pick on the middle-aged square guy day. My apologies. I'll be on my way. Bye-bye. Which I think is obnoxious, but also hilarious, because we all know that person. We all know that person who's just like, you haven't seen The Wire. Your life is garbage. Like, <laughs> we've been that person occasionally. Um, hello. This is that's like the basis of this podcast. We try really hard not to be that way. It's like, you haven't seen The Wire? Do you like cop shows? That's what we go for now. We we try to do that with each other. It's just like <sighs> I'm, so sh- I'm just embarrassed to be that's married better. to you. Like it's, it's a better just, way to deal with it. It's bad. We keep it here at home. They rely really heavily on him singing Let's Get It On to redeem his character. However, this evening we will be Barry Jive and the Uptown Five. And it like 90% works. It works in that he's moving on. He finally, he's getting in a band. And then we see that, oh, he actually is talented. He's talented. So he's got a path. So both him and Dick are moving on to other things. Like they're not giving up the record store. They're still going to be who they are, but they're expanding their lives a bit. Yeah. So that's good. I love him. This role was written with him in mind, but he almost turned it down. Okay. And Artie Lang auditioned for this role. Oh, yeah. Artie Lang would have been good in that, too. Uh, not he, as good as Jack Black. He wouldn't have gotten, like, the crazy intensity right. No, he wouldn't have gotten the sweetness right. I think for that, too. Lisa Bonet as Maria DeSalle. Barf. <laughs> Before this, of course, she was in The Cosby Show, Angel Heart, A Different World, and Enemy of the State. And after this, Biker Boys, Life on Mars, and Road to Paloma were the only credits that looked like anything. 
Oh, Lisa Bonet, I'm sorry, but your daughter does a better version of you than you. <laughs> Her daughter being Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, I, she's gorgeous. Lisa Bonet is just beautiful. And that's literally the only reason they put her in this movie. She never does anything special, in my opinion, or interesting. Like, she's just, I'm the exotic hippie. That's what she is in every single role, with the exception of the Cosby show. I didn't, I never felt that from her there. And a little bit of a different world. But every other time I've seen her since, she's the exotic hippie. Hmm. But she's also married. Now she's married to one of the most amazing men in the universe, Jason Momoa. <laughs> Joan Cusack as Liz. Hi, big sister Joan. <laughs> Yelling at a brother like she do. I'm not going to go through all her credits, but no. this was one tiny piece of trivia I loved. They have been in a total of nine movies together. Yeah. Class 16 Candles, Grandview USA, Broadcast News, Say Anything, Gross Point Blank, Cradle Will Rock, and War Inc. were the other films they've been in together. What do you think about her in this movie? I mean, she yells at her brother well. It's Joan Cusack. Really well, though. She she can't do anything wrong. They do the sibling rivalry stuff really fun, even though they're not siblings in this movie. No, they don't always play siblings. She's great. She seems like the only real, actual human woman in this film. Because I love that she's furious at him, but she's also like, I know you're better for her than this other dude. Which is weird, but it's also a fun thing to see a, a character be like, you're, you're better for her than this other person that she's, she's with. It's also incredibly frustrating that they put the onus on a female character to somehow show Rob that he has to be better. Oh, like life. Ugh. White dudes are the worst. They really are. Mm-hmm. And I should know. Yeah, you're the worst. Catherine <laughs> mm-hmm. Zeta-Jones for our last main cast member mm-hmm. as Charlie Nicholson. Oh, young Catherine Zeta-Jones. And then, of course, all I'm doing while watching this is just be like, Haha, they're so mean to each other in American Sweethearts, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, and they don't, they don't like each other in that film either. Yeah. Before this, she was in The Darling Buds of May, Blue Juice, The Phantom, The Mask of Zorro, Entrapment, and The Haunting. Mm-hmm. After this, Traffic, America's Sweethearts, Chicago, Sinbad, Legend of Seven Seas, Intolerable Cruelty, The Terminal, Ocean's Twelve, The Legend of Zorro, No Reservations, The Rebound, Rock of Ages, Side Effects, Red Two, Dad's Army, Cocaine Godmother on television, and finally, she has just done Queen America for TV. Yeah, she's taken off the last couple of years. She's had several breaks for very important reasons. Yeah, her kids, and then also her husband got cancer, so like, you know, she Mm -hmm. got chill. Yeah, she's just great. Like, she's just well above Rob, like, and she just could care less about him. And then I like when he goes back and revisits her, he's just like, wow, you just keep talking and you say nothing. Well, but my problem is, is that he sees that the first time, mm-hmm. but he's so just in love he's with He's enamored her. with the idea. And then as you, well, as you get older, those people don't change. And it's just like, oh... You have nothing of interest to say. Except that he should be talking about that now, 20 years later. I know. That's I my know. problem. I know. We have a ton of Arpons yes, as we well. Do. Random persons of note. Mm-hmm. Starting off with Tim Robbins as Ian Raymond. I love Tim Robbins. When he plays dweebs, it's so much fun. Dweebs and hippies are great. Just and he great. also gets the shit kicked out of him really well. Uh, he, do- he does pretty well. He's really good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lily Taylor as Sarah Kendrew. 
as the totally mentally unstable former girlfriend. Natasha Gregson Wagner as Caroline Fortis, the music writer. The biggest reason she is a Arpon is she is the daughter of Natalie Wood and Richard Gregson and the stepdaughter of Robert Wagner. Okay. Drake Bell as Rob in junior high. Mm-hmm. That, yes, Cute. of Drake and Josh. And it's funny, you go look at pictures of him, dead ringer for John Cusack. Oh, oh yes. It's sure. hilarious. Oh, yeah. Sarah Gilbert as Anna Moss. Aw, little, little Sarah Gilbert. They're adorable. <laughs> Margaret Travolta as Rob's mom. Weird. That is the sister of John Travolta. Uh-huh. Also, he got cut out of this movie, but Harold Ramis was going to play Rob's dad. Aw, that's, that's good casting. His scene got cut. Joan and John's father, Dick Cusack, plays the minister at the funeral. Ah, funny. This is one of two times that he has been in a movie with them. And finally, as himself, the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Woohoo. He does a great job in his cameo. He, he does pretty good. He's very good at being fake Bruce Springsteen, yeah. which is really funny. Mm-hmm. Right Give that big final good luck and goodbye to your all time top five and just move on down the road. Good luck. Thanks, boss. The only fun part note with that was that. John Cusack really wanted Bob Dylan to do that, but mm-hmm. Dylan was unavailable at the time. Fair. So they got Bruce to do it instead. I, I, I think Bruce is a better choice. I just, he's got a better sense of humor about himself. Yeah, exactly. He's so good at, you know, being normal and down to earth, but also when they're like, can you like be the boss? Yeah. And he's like, okay. Okay, I'll be a caricature of myself. <laughs> he does it very well, yes. It's very funny. So as I said, there's really no other interesting trivia about this movie. It's just kind of a, a train wreck. So how many. On your top five, where are you going to go? Give? On my top five list. How many stars are you going to give on your top five list here? Two, two, because like I like the conventions of the movie, and I like John Cusack and Jack Black, but like this movie's not good. I'm giving it a one and a half. Okay. I'm really soured by the the take on women and dating, yeah, and I know those are all horrible. How it goes here, and to the point where I'm not charmed a lot by what you know the other characters do. I think I do have to give it up that Dick's character is really good, and I like some of the jokes, mm-hmm. but otherwise, this yeah. movie is just gross. It's not funny. It's no. not entertaining. Like you said, Lloyd Dobler would be incredibly disappointed with Rob Gordon. He would be so disappointed, but I mean, I th- and I think for that reason, this was a great double feature. Yeah, so, it is. Uh, thank you to uh, Bill William. Indeed. Yeah, it was fun. I'm, I'm glad we did it. Because uh, I have been meaning to see this movie for a long time. Now I just, you know, I'm going to get wash that taste out of my mind by watching Say Anything five more times. And I think that's wise and important. Yes. But next week, we uh, are going to return to an old friend. Oh, boy. We're hitting May, and in May, we like to do bonds, and we're completionists here at Macintosh and Mod, so it's time to do the Roger Moore bond, and we are starting with Live and Let Die. This is my core knowledge of James Bond. And I have seen zero of these. Wow! Um, And so we're going to go through all the Roger Moores. We are going to go back and do Casino Royale. As a Patreon exclusive. The 1967 comedy 
parody. Mm-hmm. And then we are also, because it happens during this timeline, we are going to do Never Say Never Again, the unsanctioned Bond film starring Sean Connery. <laughs> uh, so we're just, it's going to be a lot of Bond for a while, but we're super excited about it. We love gadgets and shoot them up. So get ready for campy. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. All right, like everybody else in the universe, we went and saw Avengers Endgame this weekend. After the devastating events of Avengers Infinity War, the universe is in ruins. With the help of remaining allies, the Avengers assemble once more in order to undo Thanos' actions and restore order to the universe. Okay, we're going to be non-spoilery. Which means we're going to talk for two seconds. Nah, I'm just messing. I enjoyed my experience. It's a great movie. It It really is. I am pleased with the resolutions they provided us with. <laughs> you want to be you want to be a robot here and I'll give my, you know, just normal opinions on it. Cuz if I start, it's just going to get into spoilery territory and I don't want to do that to anybody and I but I want people to know how I feel. I will say that it pleasantly surprised me mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the middle big Avengers movies that we've Mm -hmm. dealt with, like Ultron and stuff. Correct. I didn't get that fatigue. I didn't get fatigue. I felt like it exceeded what I was really thinking it was going to be. And with that, I was really pleasantly surprised. Uh, There were a lot of surprises for me. Just just little things. And they they had, you can tell they're still having fun. They were still having fun while making this movie. And that's important when you've gone this long. Oh, yeah. There's there's love throughout that entire cast. So I, of course, have nitpicks, but we're not going to we don't need to get into those until like enough time has passed. Like by the time Spider-Man Far From Home comes, we can have a more spoilery conversation about this movie. Everybody's going to have different takes on how they feel about the movie. What I will say is if you've been a fan of the MCU for this long and you've bought in, you're not going to be upset in any form or fashion, in my opinion. I don't think so. You'll have quibbles, but you're not going to be massively pissed off at how how we do this. I I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 